1: Today on Something You Should Know, what word in the English language has the most meanings? And it's only three letters long. Then, what is heredity and how much are you really like your parents?
2: It's not like just because you look like one of your parents, you are more like them in some sort of deep way. You inherit 50% of your genes from one parent, 50% from the other. So, genetically speaking, you know you're just a perfect, you know, 50-50 split between your parents.
1: Also, where did sneakers or tennis shoes come from? And you'll meet the father of the modern cell phone. He actually made the very first public cell phone call, and he has high hopes for the future.
0: Think of what the potential of a cell phone. The UN did a study that showed that. 1.2 billion people in Africa moved out of severe poverty, mostly because of a cell phone. All this today on Something You Should Know.
1: If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you, doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months... Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. We start today with an interesting question. Which word in the English language has the most different meanings? Unless you know it, you probably won't believe it. It's only three letters, but it has 645 meanings, according to the Oxford English Dictionary. And the word is run. Think about it. You can run to the store, you can have a run in your stockings, you can run over on your budget, your car can run over a nail, and if it punctures the tire, then your car won't run right. You can run in a race, you can run up a tab, and if you're the boss, then you run the show. And the list goes on. One small word, lots and lots of meanings, 645 of them. And now I must run on to the next segment. And that is something you should know. When you hear the word hereditary, you probably think about things like eye color or hair color or height, things like that, things you inherit from your parents or that are passed down through generations of families. But it turns out there's a lot of misunderstanding about what is and isn't hereditary and how much of who you are is determined by heredity versus your environment versus your personal choice. And science is learning so much about this, with so much more to discover in the future. It's a fascinating subject, and no one has tackled it better than Carl Zimmer. Carl writes for the New York Times. He teaches science writing at Yale University, and he's author of a really interesting and really big book called She Has Her Mother's Laugh the powers, perversions and potential of heredity. Hi Carl, welcome to something you should know. Hi, thanks for having me. So what is heredity? How do you define it? I mean most of us know what we mean by, you know, passing down from your parents your eye color or your hair color, but but dive in a little deeper here.
2: Well, heredity is a word that's been around for a long time. I mean the ancient Romans would talk about heredity and their word was hereditas, and and it referred to the rules by which people inherited stuff from each other. And, uh, you know, we still talk about inheriting money or houses or what have you, but by the 1800s, people were thinking about other things that uh, people inherited. You know, why was it that diseases seemed to run in families, uh, for example? So, so people started to look for explanations for why each generation resembled the previous generation uh, in, in different ways. And that's what led to the discovery of genetics. But that doesn't necessarily mean that just saying like, oh, it's, it's just genes is really the full answer to heredity. Actually, that's just really kind of the starting point for understanding what heredity is and why it means so much to us.
1: Well, those are good questions. What is it, and why does it mean so much to us?
2: You know, I, I think we have developed an idea that um, if we want to understand our own identity and who we are, we have to look to the past, so that somehow we can zero in on, on some ancestor to, to figure out how our lives ended up the way they are. Uh, and, you know, so this is what drives the, you know, the huge genealogy business today and, and the direct-to-consumer genetics testing. I mean, we want to we find out, are we, are we 27% Irish and, and can we uh, identify our great-great-great-great-great-grandmother? And maybe there's something like us in, in that person. But, you know, I would just broadly say that heredity is, is what the past gave the present and what the present is going to leave for the future.
1: How do you know, or can you know, or is it even important to know, that if some relative or ancestor had some trait or some quirk or some behavior that you have, whether that's inherited or there are just so many traits and quirks and things that people have that that you compare yourself to enough people, you're going to have some things in common?
2: I think a lot of things that we single out are just uh, coincidences There are things that lots of people have, and it just so happens that one of your many, many relatives has it in common with you. Uh, it's a bit like astrology that way. Uh, you know, yeah, you can find some coincidences that seem compelling, but you know, you, I think we need to sort of look deeper. And it is possible, you know, that you are similar to your parents, not necessarily because you share genes with them, but also because they raised you and you were paying very close attention to them, you like it or not, and uh, you are getting to be like them. That's not to say that genetics don't play a role. I mean, you know, tall people tend to have tall children and short people tend to have short children. I mean, that's a fact. But it's not simple, you know, uh, and it's perfectly normal to have people who are very short have kids who are very tall and vice versa. Um, that happens. So to, to really understand who you are, and how you tie to the past is is no simple uh, job at all.
1: But since it's the title of your book, is it true that that people have their mothers laugh, or is it just that they lived in the house with their mother who laughed, and so they laugh like her because they heard it so much?
2: I don't think science can really, you know, deliver us the definitive answer for, for those sorts of questions. But you hear people say that. I mean... You know, I, I've said that about my daughter, and you know, I, I'll hear other people talking about some trait, and um, and we're very convinced that that's that that's where it came from. And you know, to me, this underlying science is is so fascinating and complex. You know, there's genes, there are other kinds of molecules, there's culture, there are all sorts of things that go into making this connection between the past and the present. Um, but you know, if you wanna if you wanna really prove that you know, you have your, your mother's laugh, um, you know, science isn't quite ready to help you out just yet.
1: How does culture enter into this discussion?
2: Well, uh, culture is really uh, kind of like a separate channel of heredity that we humans have. I mean, we're, we humans are really extraordinary that we really have a, 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 a completely different channel of heredity that other species don't have. So, you know, we can give information uh, and knowledge, uh, customs to our children, to future generations through language and through learning and so on. I mean, we're the only species where there's really good evidence of teaching. That's really remarkable because what that means is that, that it's not like every generation has to just relearn how to crack open a nut with a rock. You can teach children how to do it. And then when they grow up, they could get better at it and they can teach their kids that as well. And so you have this heredity of culture that's traveling down. It's been traveling down our species probably for hundreds of thousands of years, and it's a, it's a real secret to our success as a species.
1: So if you can't really say that you have your mother's laugh because you inherited it in the sense that it it, it was a direct connection and it passed down... Well, then what good is this discussion? If sometimes it's true, and maybe it's not, and maybe science can help, and maybe it can't. Well, if it, if it were in such the early stages, how come your book is so thick?
2: <laughs> well, one reason the book is so thick is because heredity has this long, deep, powerful history. Heredity means a lot to us. And so part of what I'm doing in the book is is trying to explore why it means so much to us and also like what kind of trouble we can get ourselves into by searching for that value. You know, there's some very dangerous aspects to our obsession with heredity. You can look to the early 1900s in the United States when genetics emerged. There were a number of very powerful voices who said, aha, we understand heredity completely. We understand uh, why some people are, you know, score higher on intelligence tests than others. Not only that, but we think that people who uh, you know, score low on these tests should be sterilized. There were thousands upon thousands of people who were sterilized in the United States based on a, a, a very a wrong notion about heredity. And, and, you know, the Nazi Germany borrowed a lot of these ideas from the United States and took them to, to more even more horrific extremes. So, you know, whether we really understand heredity yet or not, it still matters enormously to us. And so we have to really understand what do we really know about heredity so far and how much of this is just almost like illusions that we're, we're giving ourselves about it.
1: My guest is Carl Zimmer. He writes for the New York Times and he's author of a new book called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions and Potential of Heredity.
0: So, Carl, as you
1: said earlier, tall people sometimes have tall children, but sometimes they don't. And, and some people with blue eyes have kids with blue eyes, but sometimes they don't. So, so what are you supposed to take from that?
2: Well, it's not random. And you can actually, like, put a number on, on that sometimes. Scientists will call that heritability. And so you can say, uh, well, for height, how much of the variation in a population is due to the variation in their genes? And the answer to that is about maybe 80%. So, so really like genes play a huge role in, in whether people are uh, tall or short. And, you know, so you get a lot from your parents in that regard. There are other traits that are, you know, much less heritable, but there's still some heritability in them, you know, like, you know, how your personality, like, are you kind of a neurotic person, for example, that's, you, you get some of that from genetically from your parents, but there's a lot of it is just environmental variation, and so so it's not that heredity is is meaningless. It's just that it's it's really complicated and it's really interesting too. Especially because now we can look at individual genes. So for height, I can give you a list of genes and say I know that that each of these genes plays a role in how tall you are. Now each one might only you know make you maybe an eighth of an inch taller on average. So they're all tiny. But together, um, they are influencing your height in really profound ways. And we're going to find other uh, uh, other lists of genes for all sorts of things, for risks of diseases and so on and so forth. Um, so we're just at the beginning of, of really drilling into this side of heredity. Uh, so it's an exciting time to be writing about this.
1: But let's say that you grow up in a house uh, with parents who are anxious and depressed and so when you get older you have anxiety and depression and is it worth discussing whether or not it's heredity or environment or it doesn't it doesn't really matter it's not it's it's a moot point it it doesn't really get to the problem it's just a interesting discussion
2: I think for individual cases at this point it probably usually doesn't matter But it may be that in the future, um, there may be ways of, of learning how to better deal with those disorders by understanding those genes that put us at risk.
1: But very, very casually, people will say, well, you know, Fred's mother drank a lot, so that's why he drinks a lot. Or Fred's mother was sickly and was sick all the time, and that's why he's sick all the time. Can you claim that or not?
2: No, I don't, I, I, in a sort of, you know, casual individual basis, no, I don't, I don't think that anybody can, can really know that. <laughs> there, are, there are definitely like some clear-cut cases, like let's say Huntington's disease, okay? Like we know that's caused by one mutation at one gene, and, and if, if your mother or father had Huntington's disease, you have a 50% chance of inheriting that one mutation, and if you did, you're gonna get Hunting's disease. And so if you if you go on and develop Hunting's disease, people can say like, Well, it's a shame that he got it from his mother and we know that. We that's that's clear cut. But those diseases are are, are rare. So to just say like, Oh, he drinks because his father drank Yeah, I think that's too glib.
1: So what do you think of all these genetic tests that people can have, you know, spit in a tube and, and learn all about your past and what you may or may not uh, be liable to get? What, what's your thought on that?
2: You know, I am, as you can tell by writing a book about this sort of stuff, I am intensely fascinated by how our genes influence us. Um, but when, you, when people get these results from these companies, um, I think they're looking for, you know, quick and simple answers. Tell me what my DNA says about me. That's a complicated thing to tell for the most part. It, it's pretty easy to say, hey, you have this mutation uh, uh, that, that if you're a man means you're, um, you're colorblind. That's pretty clear. But, you know, when you start to get into issues about, say, risks of diseases, then, you know, you really need to read that fine print. 23andMe is now starting to um, provide, you know, uh, results for your risks of diseases like like breast cancer and other diseases. And in some cases, you know, they're only looking at certain mutations in these genes, like the BRCA gene, you know, and, and if you don't happen to have those mutations, they'll say, okay, you don't have a risk of breast cancer from these mutations. But we know that people have other mutations on these genes, and they could have risks as well. So um, you can't take these things at some sort of like, you know, you you can't take a a test result that says you don't have these mutations as meaning you will never get cancer. It's more complicated than that.
1: Is there any science behind the idea, let's say you look more like your mother than your father, that you're more likely to have other things from your mother than your father?
2: No, there's no connection between that and the genes that, you know, that influence development of your liver or your brain or so on. Um, it's not like, you know, just because you look like one of your parents, you are more like them in some sort of deep way. You inherit 50% of your genes from one parent, 50% from the other. So genetically speaking, you know, you're just a perfect you know, 50-50 split between your parents.
1: Well, it is. I mean, it is so interesting, and it is so unpredictable. I mean, for example, my I have three brothers, and uh, they have all they all lost their hair, most of their hair, pretty early. I did not. I still have my hair. And my father had his hair until he, he died, but his father was bald. So you wonder, well, well where's the pattern there? There's no... So so if there is no pattern, maybe there is no pattern and there's nothing to discuss.
2: It's possible that a couple of generations back, you know, your father inherited some genes that raise your risk of, of baldness, but then also inherited other genes that lowered the risk and maybe sort of dominated over the other genes. Um, and then it was just sort of a, you know, which, which copies of those genes that he then passed down to you and your siblings, just roll the dice. And so... For these complicated traits, you know, you may have genes that are sort of tugging that in different directions. You know, I, I've had my genome sequence and I, and I can see that I have certain genes that raise my risk of cancer, certain genes that lower my risk of the same cancers, you know, and and do they even out? Well, that's kind of a hard thing to know right now because we still don't know that much about these genes. So to end up with this pattern in your family... Most of your siblings, you know, being bald and and, and you not, like, that's the, that's what you expect from heredity.
1: What about uh, dominant-handedness, whether you're left or right-handed? Is that heredity or is that something else?
2: That does seem to be uh, quite heritable. The sort of genetic basis of that is really still quite mysterious. And it's an odd thing because it's only, I guess, around 15% or so of, of people are left-handed. I'm left-handed.
1: I am too, and there's my nobody brand? else in my family that's left-handed it, for generations.
2: Well, I mean, how many generations back have you interrogated people, though? That's you yeah. know, that would be an interesting thing to to find out. I mean, well, and, and also
1: I, uh, in earlier generations, the, the left-handed people were forced to become right-handed, so you may never right. know. So, absolutely right. Is there a potential breakthrough around the corner that's going to put all this stuff in focus, or is this going to be little incremental? things will get a little bit better and you can hardly notice, but uh, over time things will get better.
2: Well, I think we are in the middle of a real revolution in bringing uh, an understanding of heredity to our health because you know it is possible now for each of us to get all of our DNA sequenced, our whole genome, for you know, thousands, $1,000, maybe even a few hundred dollars. I mean, you have to remember the first human genome project cost about three billion dollars and so it's a it's a kind of revolution like what we see in computers and phones you know in terms of DNA sequencing and also DNA analysis and um, we have so much data now and and use computers to develop really complex models that can take on all this complexity so I really do think that like in 10 or 20 years medicine is going to be uh, remarkably different it won't be any one single eureka moment it's going to be the collective work of many many scientists who are doing that work right now it's a really exciting time
1: it really is remarkable when you you put it that way when the first human genome cost billions of dollars and now for a couple hundred dollars you can you know spit in a tube and send it away and get back a lot of information that, that you could never get before it's it's a fascinating topic carl zimmer's been my guest his book is called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. And there is a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate you being
2: here. No, my, pl- my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Gather round your digital audio podcast listening device For a good old-fashioned story, it's the story of the cell phone. Imagine life without your cell phone. Some people might look back with fondness on the days before cell phones, while others might be unable to imagine how you could actually survive without a cell phone. So where did this all begin, and what might be the future of the cell phone? Well, there's probably no better person to discuss this with than Martin Cooper. He is considered the father of the cell phone. Martin led the creation of the world's first cell phone at Motorola. And Martin, this guy you're about to meet, actually made the first public cell phone call. Martin won a Marconi Prize for being a wireless visionary who reshaped the concept of mobile communication. He was inducted into the Consumer Electronics Hall of Fame and has won an incredible number of honors and awards over the years. He is author of a book called Cutting the Cord. The Cell Phone Has Transformed Humanity. Hi, Martin. Welcome.
0: Great to be here, Michael.
1: So describe, tell the story of the first real cell phone.
0: Well, it depends what you call a real cell phone. When we created the first cell phone, somebody else said, namely the, the bell system. You remember, you're maybe too young to remember the bell system. they were the monopoly that ran uh, all of our telephones uh, before 1983. Uh, And they invented this idea called cellular. uh, And their idea of what a cell phone was, was a car phone. Just think about that. That we have been trapped in our homes, uh, in our offices by that copper wire for 100 years. And now the bell system was coming and telling us that we had the freedom of cell phones, but we're now trapped in our cars. So uh, we at Motorola just didn't believe that. I propose that we have the freedom that comes from being anywhere, uh, which is a handheld telephone, a personal portable telephone. Uh, And that's when we actually built one. April 3rd, 1973, we actually demonstrated a working handheld portable telephone, 1973.
1: Even before then, though, even before modern cell phones there was something like a, a car phone because you can watch old movies or like, you know, old TV shows like, like, like the Beverly Hillbillies. And I think Mr. Drysdale had a car phone and people had phones and they looked like household handheld phone receivers.
0: Right. Car phones have been around, uh, as you say, uh, since the uh, 1950s. Yeah, but those car phones used a radio channel. Uh, where there was just one uh, conversation per radio channel in a city. You could only have maybe 30 people in the city of Los Angeles talking uh, on a car phone. These were pressed to talk. Namely, you had to push a button when you wanted to talk and let go of the button when you wanted to hear somebody else. So it was a really uh, basic service, Uh, and because the the people that provided that service uh, put too many people on their channels the ability to even use a phone was minimal the the, during the busy hour the chances of getting a channel were almost zero so (laughs) the the whole concept of cellular was to make enough channels available so that you could actually make a phone call when you wanted to
1: and so really those first car phones that you see in old, like, James Bond movies or movies with real rich people in a limousine on the phone, it it was was really a walkie-talkie. But your first cell phone, cellular phone, came out in 1973, and it took a while for, for it to catch on. But I remember those early Motorola phones, and I've seen a lot of pictures of them as well, and they were huge.
0: Yeah, they were. They, uh, uh, even the battery, the battery was three or four times bigger than a modern telephone, the battery alone. They, they used uh, nickel cadmium batteries. You, you know that today we use lithium-ion batteries. You just don't realize what primitive times there were when uh, in 1973, uh, there were no personal computers, there were no uh, large-scale integrated circuits, no digital cameras. So if we were working with minimal tools, it took a long time before we had the technology where we could make the phone small enough, where there were enough cell sites so that when you wanted to talk, you were close enough to a cell site to make it work. Cell phones didn't really take off till almost 2000, 20 years ago. And that's when we got to the point where almost everybody was at least aware of cell phones. As you know, today, there are more cell phones in the world more cell phones in the United States than there are people. uh, Most of the people in the world have cell phones. There are more cell phones in the world today than there are toilets, (laughs) as an example. Wow.
1: So at what point did people sit down and say, okay, look, we're really all in on this. We're going to really spend some money and build all these cell towers. And, like, how did that happen?
0: 1983 is when the first systems went on. The very first systems had a large city like uh, L.A. or Chicago, maybe a couple of dozen uh, cell sites uh, which could serve uh, hundreds of people instead of tens uh, but it took until the late 1990s before people could afford these phones the first cell phones costs were 50 cents a minute for uh, talking so they were really just uh, much too expensive uh, when the smartphone came on the server uh, uh, into being and i'm talking about real smartphones when steve jobs figured out you know, how to uh, provide a, a user interface that made sense, and which was only a, a dozen years ago. Uh, the cell phone, we, and it's really ludicrous to call it a phone, because it now became a computer that had access to the Internet and access to lots of applications. Uh, and that's only been around for 12 years or so. It's quite amazing.
1: Even after uh, cell phones got fairly common, There still was this idea of a car phone, like you had a car phone, and then you might also have a cell phone. That that it was still rooted in the car in a lot of ways.
0: Well, the only reason for that was that for years the cell phones, the handheld cell phones, just didn't work very well. Think about it: that when you're in a car, you're using the car battery, which is huge, has great capacity, so. Uh, it, it was not uh, unreasonable for a car phone to have 20 watts of output. Uh, a cell phone uh, has a, a fraction of a watt, so you have to be pretty close to a cell site. And it really took uh, until the, uh, uh, around 2000 for there to be enough cell sites so the handheld phones were as reliable or more so than car phones. Uh, only in the last 20 years has that been possible.
1: Yeah, it's certainly more reliable, but my experience is it's not that reliable in the sense that, you know, calls drop all the time, they just, you know, calls fail, people's voice just drops out for five seconds and you don't know what they said, or you get that digital echoey noise and you can't figure out what they said, and you can't get a signal sometimes, and and the audio quality's just not that good. I mean, we... You know, we, we do interviews with people for this podcast, and our, one of our rules is no cell phones. You can't be on a cell phone because it's hard to listen to. The audio quality isn't very good.
0: Well, I think you're right. I uh, uh, I experienced that myself. As a matter of fact, my, my service in my own living room is marginal, and I do get dropped calls. The, uh, the emphasis that the carriers have put on 5G is an example of how they're less interested uh, in their uh, customers uh, who are talking and listening than they are in uh, data uh, getting super high speeds uh, and things of that nature and and in doing so and emphasizing uh, what they call latency and high speeds they're looking for industrial customers uh, and they're not taking care of us consumers uh, as, they, as they ought to.
1: Yeah, I've always thought that's one of the reasons texting caught on. I mean, I know there are other reasons as well, but people would just get tired of, like, hello, can you hear me, hello? Oh, man. And then you got to call back, and it seems like, gosh, by now they should have nailed that.
0: Yeah. Even though we use have this cellular approach where lots of cell sites all over the city, if there's too much traffic, you get dropped calls, and that's the basic reason. Uh, that you're getting uh, poor service. There are too many people trying to get on too few channels uh, and you get dropped calls as a result.
1: So what happened to Motorola? Because I remember a time when, you know, cell phone meant a Motorola phone in in the early days and and obviously now they're not even in the game. So what happened?
0: Well, it was a heartbreak to me. Uh, Because Motorola were the leaders and the people that took over that business after I left uh, Motorola uh, had the hubris to think that they could control the world. And when the carriers, the people that provide the service, decided that things were to go digital, uh, Motorola resisted that. They said, you know, we don't need digital. We can do, uh, provide you better service with analog. Well, it turns out at that time they were right. Uh, but the uh, carriers decided that they were going to go digital. Uh, and uh, other people responded to them with digital technology. Uh, and Motorola had trouble catching up. And by the time they did catch up, other people, uh, specifically uh, Samsung uh, and Apple, uh, had taken over the market. Uh, Motorola ended up uh, being uh, bought by uh, Google, of all things. That lasted for about a year. And today, uh, Motorola is a part of a Chinese company it's a heartbreak to me but it's an example of if you don't stay on your toes and compete you get beat by other people
1: what do you think about when when you think back to like 1973 and you said hey look we've got this phone we just created this cellular phone obviously well maybe would imagine that you couldn't even possibly imagine that we would be where we are today with cellular technology or could you?
0: First of all, uh, you know I did tell you what primitive times there were. Uh, The idea that you would have a computer, that you would have access to all the knowledge in the world uh, that you could text, that you could do uh, uh, video conversations, uh, none of those things we knew that was going to happen someday but not, uh, certainly not in our lifetimes it was clear to us, however, that someday everybody would be, have a cell phone. We just knew that that was the case. In contrast with the Bell System, who thought that cell phones, they, they had a study done, uh, and the study concluded that there would be a maximum of a million cell phones in the world ever. Well, it turns out they were right, because there were, the maximum number of car phones there ever were and were about a million, but the story that we told at that time is that someday, uh, when you were born, you would be assigned a phone number, and if you didn't answer the phone, you had died. We knew there, <laughs> that this was going to be a big deal,
1: and and it turned out to be quite a big deal. and And, and what's your uh, what's your sense now of of you know did, did you is Pandora out of the box or any regrets? Did, was this Better than you'd imagined, worse than you'd imagined, what?
0: Oh, I think we got a long way to go. I think we uh, just barely tapped the, the power of being connected. Because uh, at least in this country, most of the things people do on cell phones are games. Social media is really not fundamental. But just think of what the, the potential of a cell phone. You have to go to Africa and India and Mexico to find out what the real future of the cell phone because there people are using the cell phone. First of all, it's their first phone and their only phone. Uh, in, in Africa, uh, the cell phone is the whole basis of, of the money system. The way people transfer money, uh, save money in Africa, is by using cell phones. And the UN did a study that showed that 1.2 billion people in Africa moved out of severe poverty, uh, mostly because of their cell phone. Uh, in Mexico, poor villages in Mexico that never had a doctor can now get health care by a doctor in Mexico City by virtue of a cell phone and uh, gadgets like a device, that a $5 device that clips on a cell phone that will um, um, allow a doctor in Mexico City to look at their eyes. They can actually do an ultrasound of a pregnant woman using a cell phone. So we're just barely starting to understand the power of the cell phone. One way or another, we are just at the beginning of what the power of the cell phone will do for human beings.
1: And it's interesting that all of that is it has nothing to do with a phone call.
0: <laughs> it, is, it is ludicrous to call this thing a phone, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, it, well, it really is. So in the next 10 years, what do you see coming in cell phone technology?
0: And within the next 10 years, I think you're going to see a much better coverage. They are going to advance the, the ability to process audio so that a cell phone call will have the equivalent quality of people talking face-to-face. Well, you know, I'm a futurist. I think that uh, 30 or 40 years from now, when you do a call, that the person you're talking to will be right in front of you, virtually uh, as real as if they were physically there. There's no reason why we can't do that. There's enough capacity in the radio spectrum. We know that the amount of processing power uh, is doubling every 18 months Moore's law the uh, amount of of radio channels that we have is doubling every 30 months they call that Cooper's law Uh, so the technology is coming is is becoming real and at some point uh, those problems are going to get solved is Cooper's law named after you no, I, I didn't uh, name it Cooper's law. But, uh, I called it the, the law of spectrum capacity. The amount of bits of data that you can put it, at a given amount of radio spectrum. People are not were nice enough to call that Cooper's law, but it's not a law, it's an observation. that that's been happening since radio was invented, since Marconi uh, did the first commercialization of uh, radio uh, around uh, 1900. The capacity of the spectrum, the number of conversations that you could hold in all of the radio spectrum has doubled every 30 months. And if you work the arithmetic, we have a trillion times the capacity today than than Marconi had back in in 1900, Uh, and that capacity uh, is going to keep increasing.
1: Along the way in the development of the cell phone, were there any game-changing moments because of some new technology, you know, the transistor, or, you know, some, some big thing that, like, just changed the game?
0: Well, it's kind of interesting, but uh, much as I uh, was not crazy about uh, uh, Steve Jobs as a person, uh, Steve Jobs figured out the issue of the interface. How do you connect advanced technology to a human being, and he did work out this thing about the interface that we experience today with cell phones, uh, using uh, icons, uh, using things that are uh, intuitive, Uh, and that was a a game changer. People had had uh, cell phones before that uh, that did have screens on them, Uh, they never got it right. I think that was a breakthrough. Uh, The uh, other breakthrough was uh, in batteries. Uh, as I mentioned before, the, uh, the first batteries we had were huge. The result was the first cell phones weighed two and a half pounds. When you talk about a modern cell phone at eight to ten ounces, so the batteries were important. Uh, large-scale integrated, integrated circuits. Uh, the chip that drives the power of a modern cell phone uh, has uh, over two billion transistors on it. So that surf the first cell phone that we built uh, measured the cell phone, uh, the number of transistors in the thousands.
1: So I have to ask you, since you are the father of the cell phone, do you like that title? Do you like being called the father of the cell phone? Uh, not,
0: uh, not really.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, like it or not, that's the title you're stuck with. And so can can we assume that because you are the father of the modern day cell phone that on every bill, there's one penny that people are charged and it goes to you, and by now you're a quintillionaire.
0: First of all, I, I, Michael, I'm not complaining at all. I've I got lots of recognition, and I'm very proud of of the small contribution I have made, but it took tens of thousands of people to create the technology that uh, what we call is a cell phone today. And when I joined Motorola in 1954, I had to sign a piece of paper uh, they gave me $1 uh, and all of my intellectual property, any ideas that I came up, any inventions that I came up that were Motorola's property. Uh, it was the best deal I ever did, Michael, because for 30 years, you know, Motorola tolerated me, tried to make a, an executive out of me and failed miserably. But they let me generate ideas, build new products. Uh, and uh, have a lot of fun. And I'm very grateful to Motorola. So I'm uh, totally satisfied.
1: Well, it is really great to hear the story from the person who lived the story. And I appreciate you coming on. Martin Cooper has been my guest, the father of the cell phone, whether he likes it or not. And he is author of the book, Cutting the Cord. The Cell Phone Has Transformed Humanity. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Martin. Appreciate you
0: being here. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Michael. I'm sincere. You really did did a nice job, and you were a smart guy.
1: Sneakers, or tennis shoes, or whatever you want to call them, have a fascinating past. The sneaker goes back to the late 18th century, when rubber-soled shoes called plimsolls were first introduced, and they were pretty crude. In fact, there was no right or left foot. It didn't matter. Around 1892, the U.S. Rubber Company came up with a rubber sole canvas top shoe called Keds. By 1917, they were mass-produced. That same year, Marquis Converse produced the first shoe that was made just for basketball, called Converse All-Stars. Then in 1923, an Indiana basketball star named Chuck Taylor endorsed those shoes, and they became known as Chuck Taylor All-Stars, and they are the best-selling basketball shoe of all time. Sneakers went international in 1924. That's when a German man named Adidasler created a sneaker that he named after himself, Adidas. Adi's brother Rudy started up another famous sports shoe company, Puma. It wasn't until the 1950s that kids began wearing sneakers for everyday footwear. And when James Dean wore them in the film Rebel Without a Cause, that's when sales really took off. And that is something you should know. Being the curious type that you are, I'm sure you have friends who are also curious and who would also enjoy this podcast, so please tell them about it, send them a link, and let them know about this podcast. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know